Welcome to the Soulful Sound Podcast. This podcast is about celebrating the leaders, teachers, and coaches who guide fellow humans to connect, heal, and discover themselves so they can express their gifts into the world. I am Simone Niles, a coach, sound healer, vocalist, and author. Thank you for being here with me today. Welcome back, everyone, to a new episode on the Soulful Sound podcast. I am joined by Richard Dixie, who is the author of Three Minutes a Day, a 14-week course to learn meditation and transform your life, and a senior faculty member at Dharma College in Berkeley, California. A research scientist and lifelong student of Buddhism who holds advanced degrees in biophysics and the history and philosophy of science, he directed a bioelectronic research unit at a London hospital before becoming CEO of his own biotech company. Wow. Welcome, Richard, to the podcast. So happy to have you here. Great. Happy to be here. And who is that guy? Guys, yes. that's important for you Honestly, more fantasy. <laughs> I love that. It's sometimes when we do have our bios on paper, we're like, really? Did I did I do all of that? But it's oh, I know. like, oh, well, I mean, yes. when was that? <laughs> yes. And certainly worth acknowledging the, the work that you've been putting into to this field. Now, I love to start this podcast off just asking my guests a little bit about their personal journey. So obviously oh. the book is about meditation. Talk to us a bit about your journey into meditation. Well, now this is an interesting thing. My interest in meditation is because of knowledge, really. It's because, you know, I was educated in the heroic period of science with DNA and, you know, all of that. And there was a a time when people really believed science was going to explain everything. Mm. You know, 2001, A Space Odyssey, with that thing that keeps turning up. And, And, you know, this idea somehow we're going to know everything. And it began to dawn on me in my late teens that this wasn't right. There's a lot missing (laughs) from the scientific model. And, you know, in many ways, my whole life story has been alternating between loving the scientific validity that you can get from scientific statements, Mm -hmm. yet at the same time mourning the fact they're not complete. And it's taken me almost my whole life to square that circle into a position where I can now understand why science is incomplete but how we can complete it and therefore really make our incredible modern culture whole. Because at the moment it's not, and people are really suffering, and there's a crisis of truth, and there's all kinds of stress coming because people don't have an understanding of this whole. And so there's a big picture behind this. And my life has alternated between being a scientist on the one hand I'm being a kind of Buddhist esoteric guy on the other. And I've kind of tick-tocked like this between one and the other. And it was only when I discovered the Asian meditation traditions that I was able to square the circle and find a solution to what I think is really a very big and important issue, which is how do we get wholeness in the face of rapid technological, political, environmental, you know, there's all this change. Mm. And, you know, there's real, real stress. And so that's really one of the things that's motivated me very strongly as I found where you can get it to want to see if we can make it approachable to everyone. That's part of the reason for writing this book. 
Yes, that's wonderful. And and often people, I mean, when, when people ask me about my journey into meditation, I grew up in a spiritual rather than religious background. And I've learned, started learning to meditate from as young as six through my mom's metaphysical background mm-hmm. and going down to the beach and having sunrise meditations. And the practice evolved over these years, of course. Um, but I really love and I'm so excited because your story is, as you said, it came from this scientific, this very different way in. So I'm really curious about how you kind of squared that, how you brought the science and maybe stop that tick-tocking. How did you find that equilibrium somewhat um, in your experience? Yeah, I mean, this is, this is, I mean, I, I get into this in the book, um, but really the, the answer is this, we are mapping mm. all the time. We're making sense of our experience all the time. And we're taught in school that the only thing that's real is the so-called external world. But the honest truth is we have no experience of it. The only experience we actually ever have is of our five senses and our thoughts and our imaginations. There is no other experience. Everything else is inferential. The problem is we're not taught in school how to address the actual experience of those five senses and thoughts and imaginations. We use our five senses, thoughts, and imagination to infer a world, but that's an inference. Now, the thing about inferences, they can never be true. They're just best guesses. Mm-hmm. You know, there's smoke on the hill. There may be fire, but of course it could be someone cooking lunch. You, yes. You're never totally sure yes. that it's actually fire. And it's exactly the same thing. So, We make this inferential map continually, 20 times a second. It's really boom, 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 boom. And and if we're not, if we're not aware of how we make that map, life's gonna be a little bit strange. So we have all this clever technology and all these ideas about the world, but nonetheless, we're blind to how we're actually understanding that world. Do you feel called to use your voice and sound in a healing capacity? Learn how to use your voice therapeutically to facilitate healing and well-being. Whether you want to go deeper in your own healing journey or facilitate others in theirs, this training is for you. This online training runs over five weekends and offers theory, practice, resources, and support on your path to becoming a qualified sound healer and for your personal healing journey. And this is a fundamental issue. So to me, meditation is a deep part of becoming human, really. Mm. It's really to understand what it is to be something that knows, something that knows. And that knowing bit of that thing bit is where meditation comes in. And you go, okay, I'm going to look my experience as experience. I'm not going to go, oh, it's one of those. That's using my experience to infer something else. I'm going to look at my experience as experience. And that activity is essentially meditation. And of course, you have to, we'll get into how you do that. But that's fundamentally what it is. If I had a wish on my gravestone, the guy died and he wished this, it would be at school in third grade, I wanted to teach reading, writing, and meditation. And you were really lucky 
that I you listen to your mummy. I mean, I haven't had such success with my children, I must say, but your mummy was obviously very persuasive. And, you know, that's great because meditation is a fundamental element of being a human being. And to me, that's it. It's not religious. It's a skill like reading and writing. And, you know, I just feel when I see the alienation Mm. The generation and the previous generation, you know, the alienation has been growing, basically. Yes. And every generation that comes after the next is more and more and more alienated. And they're they're alienated by the very technology we're producing. Mm-hmm. It's alienating them. And so to me, there's a there's a profound and worrying feeling of a kind of split in our culture between, on the one hand, greater and greater wealth huge discoveries, advances in every single aspect of life. And on the other hand, a kind of increasing alienation and what's the point and, mm-hmm. you know, all that. and to me, that's where meditation can bring it together. Yes, that is beautiful. And I, and it's really interesting. I mean, again, I've said I've had some experience in meditation and the way you've voiced that I really resonate with. For me, it's always been this um, way to go within because the yeah. external world, you know, that that reflection, as you said, through the five senses, thoughts, imagination and so on, that that's forever moving, changing, evolving as we experience. And that inward um, looking space, centering, whatever words it's like words don't quite describe it, but it really takes you to a different place where the perspective completely shifts, where you're able to be more than do. And I, I really love love the way you've described it. I don't think I've heard it quite said that way. It's very, very interesting. Um, and I'm curious because your book is about three minutes a day. Why three minutes? Because I know well, a lot of people are going to be like, three minutes? You know, is it supposed to be like 20 minutes, possible. half an hour? <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, so so the meditation traditions are essentially coming from a monastic culture where they were full-time people who meditated and were monks, basically. They didn't even have to grow food or get their own clothes. They were given food, given clothes. So naturally, the traditions, which are intact, and that's the incredible thing, there are no Western traditions that are intact. Mm. But the Asian meditation traditions have unbroken lineage going back thousands of years. And but the thing is, they're for monks and monks, you know, that's their day job. So they can meditate one hour, two hours, no problem. And the question is, is it necessary to meditate that long to get the essential insights you need Mm. to understand your experience as experience? And, you know, I run this thing called Dharma College with my wife, Wangmo, who's the eldest daughter of a Tibetan Lama. This is a Tibetan teacher who came from Tibet, trained in Tibet. Mm-hmm. And uh, we we set up this college to reimagine wisdom. The idea was to see if we could take the Asian meditation traditions and re-express them in Western language, contemporary language, using metaphors for contemporary people. Mm-hmm. So rather than trying to make sense of you know Sanskrit or Pali or Tibetan, we're trying to bring it all into contemporary context. Yes. And as part of that, I began teaching meditation, and I began realizing that you really could. You could shorten it and shorten it and shorten it and shorten it. And the three-minute number is just because it's the time it takes to drink a cup of coffee. You know, there's no there's no logic to it, really. But the idea is if you do for a very short period something concentrated, which you understand. So it's not that you're kind of, I'm not quite sure why I'm doing this, but the guy said I've got to do. No, you really know what you're doing. 
you yes. can make real progress. And it, it's like like a dripping tap. You know, it's drip, 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 drip every day, drip, mm-hmm. drip, drip. And you build up a kind of capacity just by repetition. Yes. So to me, that that turned out to be successful. And I taught it, you know, and as the glasses went on, people were transcribing and stuff and saying it really works. And that's what turned into the book. So, you know, we can talk a bit more about what you need to do and specifically what the obstacle is that stops people from meditating and why they get confused by meditation. And there are a number of issues that one has to address, but basically you can do it in a very short time. Yes. So I'm definitely going to jump into those obstacles. And I have a few questions that came up from what Mm. I've read so far. But I do have a quick question about concentration. A lot Mm. of a lot of the time, um, this partly um, personal experience, but also what I've heard and learned and read in that meditative state, you're you're in a state is the concentration the way to this to that space rather than the space being about concentration. So for example, I often find that a trance-like state, whether that's through certain activities or silence or sounds or whatever it might be that takes you into that moment of nothingness or emptiness, it doesn't feel necessarily like concentration. So I'd love to hear a bit more about the concentration piece of your of your sure. work. Well, now your point is something really interesting and you're obviously a meditator. Mm-hmm. Concentration has two bits. Yes. And this is what we are not taught at school as well. Okay. So all of us are taught to concentrate. That's a very common trope. Concentrate. Yeah. Concentrate. <laughs> but that that form of concentration, which technically is called adverting, you can advert your attention. You can take your attention, put it on something, yeah. is brittle. Because yes. when something else arises, whoop, we're concentrating on that. And then whoop, we're concentrating whoop, like this. And so people end up saying, oh, I can't concentrate because I'm being disturbed. Mm. And so often beginning meditators try to close themselves in a quiet room, you know, no light, eyes closed. Then they just go to sleep. That's the yeah. problem. <laughs> so yeah. The idea is that you try and shut everything down so you can concentrate. Mm. But actually, and this is a real gift of these meditation traditions, there are two parts to concentration. There is adverting, taking your attention to a thing. And then there's savoring. Mm. Savoring is also part of concentration. So, for example, if you find, you know, someone who's, say, an antique dealer, they'll pick up some object and they'll kind of touch it and play with it like this. you know. And what they're doing is they're savoring the object. So they say, this is real or this is a fake. They can tell. Just by this savoring process. The the simple metaphor is you lift a cup of coffee to your lips. That's adverting. That's taking an object of concentration. Then you taste the coffee. Now, tasting the coffee is different. You've got an object, but now you're moving with that object. And that type of concentration, which technically is called vikara, that type of concentration is inherently stable. So you can enter into a space which is sometimes called presence Mm. when you are concentrated, but there's no specific object. You're just in a concentrated place. Now, that is a very, very important platform to develop calmness because calmness is not about being in a little box with your eyes closed. Nothing could affect me. That isn't calm. It's actually tension. Yes. Calmness is being able to be open, 
to anything that happens and not react to it. Now, the non-reactivity is not one of like this. It's one of merely engaging mm. with what's happening, like you might dance with someone. Mm. You're responding. You're not reacting. And that type of open, progressive concentration is where stability and meditation comes from. Now, most people who've tried meditation have not understood this. So they've tried to concentrate. Then their concentration has become brittle. Mm -hmm. Then they try to stop thoughts, because often the most annoying things are thoughts that come up. We try to stop thoughts. And then they say, I can't. I get so tense trying to stop thoughts. I have to give this up. I can't do this. And yes. it's they've not gone about it the right way. It's really very easy to first learn to advert. And we use a candle to do that. You can use any one of the gates to do this. Any one of the six ways we experience the so-called six gates, whether it's the five senses, all thoughts and imagination, any one of those, we can take one, we learn to advert, which is very simple because all of us can do that. Mm -hmm. Then we learn to savor. Mm, and savoring yeah. is quite different. And what I like using is a bell. Mm. And the reason I'm using a bell is when you strike a bell, ding, the initial thing is an adverting sound. You immediately go to it. Then it fades. And that fading away is a very, very valuable object of concentration. As you follow the fading, mm. you fall into silence. Yes. And after a while, you go, wow, I'm still concentrated, but I've got no sound. There's nothing. I'm concentrated on nothing. And then you go, wow, this is presence. Mm. I've become present. Now, this is a really, really important development in meditation. Three minutes turns out to be quite a long time. Mm. If you do something deliberately for three minutes, you're going to be going, boy, is this ever going to end? Like It's like it's not a short time. Block yeah. time is nothing. But actually, if you do it like that, it's a substantive piece of time. Yeah. And daily, it adds up. It adds so up. that's part of that's how we get into a meditative journey, which opens up a complete world. Yes. that we never knew, because actually the external world is a construct that we've inferred. The internal world is also a construct that we inferred. But between the two is actuality, which turns out to be vast and rich beyond our wildest imaginations, mm. because it is literally the entirety of anything we could imagine is there. It's a huge, massive thing, far, far larger than what we think the world is. Yes. And that's a tragedy. If people never find it, they're living in this very narrow band of what they know and what they see, and what they know and what they see, and what they know and what they see. And what they see. I mean, there's a little, little box. <laughs> And when gradually they get free, oh, my gosh, they've got all this materiality I didn't realize I had. It's a big, big discovery. That is beautiful. Yes. And I love that you spoke about the bell and you spoke about the candle. A lot of the work I do in sound healing, we, we speak about producing the sound and the frequency that you know, stirs or heals or moves, but yeah. the magic and integration happens in the silence. And that's beautiful. It is the same with music and silence. We have both. You've got a beautiful gong there, I can see behind. 
Oh, my Blind. singing bowl. Yes. <laughs> Same thing. That's a perfect thing to use. That's exactly. Great. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So you did speak about this in your book, and I want to know more about it. The You were talking about the the mind being like a city with six gates and you mentioned the gates a moment ago. So what are those six gates? Tell us more well, about I that. I mean, this is really commonsensical. They're the five senses. Yep. And then the mind gate. Right. And the mind gate is essentially thinking, imagining, which is a form of thinking and emotionality. And, you know, so you can say that there are only six ways that we get direct experience. It's from those six ways that we make right. a world. Okay. We say, oh, it's one of those, or it's one of those. Now, in our language, we have such an interesting thing. We say we recognize. Mm. If I know you, I go, I recognize you. Now, we never say recognize. We will say, cog we will say recognize. Mm -hmm. But if I say I recognize you, I might think, what do I mean I recognize you? What am I doing when I'm recognizing you? Well, the answer is, I, I've got you, that's cognition, there's someone here, and then I recognize by going into my memory and going, oh, yeah, I've been there before. Oh, yeah, I recognize you. Yes. Reflexive secondary process of recognition is where we make the world. And what meditation is about is separating cognition from recognition. Wow. And when you get back to cognition, there's suddenly no names there's no want, no, don't want. There's no like, don't like. There's none of that stuff. That's all in recognition. Yeah. What you have is something altogether different. And most of us never get there because we're so reflexive mm. in our recognition that we never realize that it is a recognitive process. <laughs> we always think, oh, well, I mean, recognition. So people say, oh, I've got to get into the here and now. That's a really common thing. That people, I've got to get to the here and now. Mindfulness is about being in the here and now. Well, here and now are both recognitive terms. Mm. I, you try to get in the here and now. You are not meditating. That is not what meditation is about, guys. The here and now are both recognitions. You need to get to the thing that told you you were here and the thing that told you it was now. Yeah. That's where the pay dirt is. And, you know, that's where meditation does really surprising things. It's truly transformative mm. because it's a form of knowledge, which is actually experience and knowledge together. It's not the same as normal knowledge. It's not like book knowledge or I know about that or that about if, if you say I know about something, you are in a recognitive model of it. When you actually have the direct experience, you just are that thing. There's mm. no about it. You yes. are that thing. And yes. that is a big moment. And you suddenly go, wow. So there's nothing wrong with knowledge. Of course not. I mean, our, our incredible wealth of information is of great value. But it'll never, ever, ever tell you who you are. Mm. You find that out. When you separate cognition and recognition, suddenly you find out who you are. Because remember, recognition is essentially everybody you met, all your experiences, your education, your background, your socioeconomic conditions, the country you were born in, your likes and dislikes, the bad things that happened to you, the good things that happened to you. All this stuff yes. goes into recognition. Yes. And it, the technical word is it conditions Yes. Your response. 
So your responses become predictable. Like I'm a white English guy with an English accent, you know, la, 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 la. So there, yeah. there are various things you know about me immediately. That's because yeah. I'm in a recognition model. Mm. So chat GBT or Google know what you're going to buy next. Yes. They can because they can track your action and say, well, I know what this guy's going to do next. He's kind of predictable. He's like a robot. Patterns are clear. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And so we're in a very amazing moment where advertisers, remember adverting? Mm. Advertisers have become incredibly sophisticated. They can now model what we're going to do next and give it to us on our mobile phones. Yeah. Now that, if we don't understand the difference between cognition and recognition, we totally lose control of our lives. We land up being dragged this way and that by people who want to make money out of us, basically. Yeah. And that produces stress and meaninglessness. You just know, well, I mean, I'm just some kind of cog here. Mm. If you're told in school that everything that matters is external to you in the cosmos or whatever, and you're just some insignificant speck on an insignificant planet, all this rap they, they, they go on about, <laughs> then if, if, if you're told that, yeah. then you end up with a life that has no value whatsoever. But yeah. this is all complete misunderstanding. Yeah. We are the center of the universe, literally the center. Yes. We're not only physically the center because the Big Bang actually came from inside everybody, but yep. we are actually the center because there is no other point of experience than your own. Yes. You can't tell me what I'm experiencing. I can't tell you what you're experiencing. We're all the center of the universe. Far from being insignificant, we are literally everything. The rest of it is inference. Now, yep. the inference is be accurate or maybe inaccurate. That's a that's an issue of knowledge. Mm. But in terms of experience, it must begin here and we need to in our capacity to separate cognition from recognition and then inhabit savor mm. that space when yes. we and savor that space we go into something altogether different yes. and to me that's like wow that's like a door yeah. opening to something quite magical yeah, that is magical. And I think, you know, even even saying that I don't know what you're experiencing and you don't know what I'm experiencing, I think we'll off we can also say that sometimes we don't even know what we're experiencing, right? It's this is like so yeah, let alone anyone else. So I yeah. love I love yeah. this. Um what's beautiful for me here is that most of my and I keep using the word experience in meditation is not it's not from I'm going to a course or I'm going to learn about it. So I couldn't speak to all the techniques and the different ways and the different ways into that. I It is from experience. But what's lovely in this conversation for me is you're I'm really resonating with what you're saying from a sensory place rather than I'm thinking this doesn't work. This doesn't you know, it's quite an interesting experience for me as I listen and and kind of take in what you're sharing. So this is beautiful. Now, the obstacles, because I know that this is what a lot of people talk about like it's hard i can't meditate or my thoughts are in the way and all this stuff so talk to me about those five uh, five obstacles that you mention in your book and what advice you have when they arise okay so canonically our, our task is to become a craftsman of our own perception as if we were a violin maker or something except we're taking our perception itself now as we begin to try to do this so-called obstacles come up mm. Now, 
let's talk about this map maker because I think we've got to understand the map maker to really understand the obstacles. Okay, great. We we you know evolution of humankind. We came from being a little naked pygmy ape on this savanna, surrounded by extremely impressive predators like saber-toothed tigers. Walk guys, oh my god! And we made it. Not only did we make it, we're now driving around in Ferraris. Hmm. Did we do that? Well, the answer is we couldn't learn from experience. So this recognitive map that I've been talking about is actually of great value because it's how humans can learn from experience. We can remember the last time and not do it again. That gives us freedom to behave in ways that animals don't have. They have some ability to learn from experience, but within a kind of box, mm. whereas humans can be really flexible and do almost anything. Now, that capacity is of great value, that map maker. And that map maker has taken us from nowhere to hero. You know, it really has. The problem is it's paranoid because really essentially it's looking for danger the whole time mm, mm. and it's got it's got nothing to do with our with making us a meaningful life or a happy life it's merely the idea is to make us a long life <laughs> that's it they're not so interested in whether you're happy about it they just keep <laughs> you alive this is why news is all news is bad news because in the recognitive map the only thing the mapping is interested in is oh is that a problem you never get a headline that's saying that said things went well. Yeah. I'm not really interested whether things went wrong. Oh my god, I want to read about that. Yes. But things went well. So you know, we've had endless headlines about the fact it rained for Burning Man. <laughs> why is that news? I mean, why is that of any interest to the world? Apparently it is, because the head of the speed is burning mud, people stuck in mud. That's because it's bad news. And even if it doesn't seem to be directly relevant, the map maker's going, yeah, okay, so if I get some mud and, you know, they're trying to work out whether there's any relevance. So, okay, now, when you try and go beyond the map maker, that's to say you try to get to cognition rather than recognition, mm. the map maker is going to manifest. Now, the map maker is a bit like an overprotective auntie. That's saying, oh, you know, you shouldn't go out. You might get mugged. You know, you mustn't do this or this might happen. It's always giving you this kind of negative advice about what you should and shouldn't do. And when you try and go beyond it, it tries to a help initially by saying, oh, I know how to meditate. Oh, yes, I can do that. Oh, yeah, I know exactly. You meant to sit with your legs crossed in front of a picture of something and you know, all this sort of idea. And this is very unhelpful. You have to get rid of that immediately. Then the map maker starts just popping ideas up. So the obstacles are really the map maker in action, trying to kind of get control back from what you know, it is like. My poor child is now doing something I'm not controlling. Oh my God. <laughs> Very dangerous. And, and there are five ways it does it. Two pairs to single thing. So the first pair is thinking. Now, classically, thinking is either wanting. Or not wanting. So classically, we daydream about things I might want, you know, things I might want to buy or things I might want to go or things I don't want, things I want to get rid of, problems I had, you know, things I must never do again. Yeah. It's called attraction and aversion. Yeah. And these are classic fantasy scenarios. 
And the map maker is always playing these scenarios, trying to work out what works, what doesn't, what we should do, what we shouldn't do, et cetera. So it's always doing that. Those are the first pair. The second pair are irritation, irritability, and dullness. Mm. Now, this is a really interesting pair. As you begin to meditate, you start for the first time hearing all this mental activity going on. So there's all this noise. And if you're not careful, you get all churned up by it. People often say, well, I was fine. Then I started meditating and now I'm all nervous. <laughs> That's irritability. Yeah. And normally what happens with irritability is if you overcome it, then you go to sleep and that's dullness. So you have irritability and dullness. And the final one is doubt. Mm. Now, doubt is the final argument of the map maker. The map maker says, well, I've got you this far. I got you through childhood, through school. I got a job. You know, come on. Why do you want to give me up? Surely that's very irresponsible. And that voice of doubt, even spending three minutes, mm. you'll find the voice going, this is a waste of time. I could be doing better things. You know, it's like, what are you talking about? Okay, so how do you overcome these things? Yeah. Well, the first thing is to realize they're really obstacles. They're features mm. of the map maker. And like anything, when you realize that something's not an obstacle, it's a feature, you've already disempowered it by 50%. Yeah. Because a lot of the problems we have in meditation is when we have what we call a problem, identify it as a problem, and then position ourselves to solve that problem. All of that language is recognitive. Yes. If we're trying to get beyond recognition to cognition, we have to drop the idea of a problem. Mm. The moment we have a problem, we're not meditating. We're just doing something or other. Yes. It's getting beyond the concept of problem that's part of meditation. So the first thing is just that. Then the second thing is a bit like judo. If you roll, so for example, supposing you're feeling like thinking is really bugging you, you know, think deliberately and then drop it. Yeah. <laughs> just for a moment, it's like, oh. And then when thoughts come, oh, they just come and go. Then if they get irritated, think deliberately, then drop it. Yeah. And that's, that's a good example of overcoming an obstacle. Now, you're not really overcoming. What you're doing is you're taking control in a very interesting way, mm -hmm. because you're really not doing deliberately. It's not really a doing, it's a not doing. Mm -hmm. But in order to get to that not doing, you have to have certain techniques. And it's the same with doubt. Never debate doubt. Oh, I'm doing this because it's good for me. It'll make <laughs> me 10% happier because it's healthy. All of that stuff is recognitive. Doubt yes. will always find a way of saying to you, well, but yeah, but, but what about this? What about that? You know, it'll always have a debate. You say, look, it's only three minutes. Chill. Yeah. yeah. You, you know, after three minutes, I'll go back to being run by you. But just for this three minutes, I'm going to do this. And doubt just, oh, okay. And, and eventually it'll just walk away from you. So overcoming obstacles is largely about realizing what they are. Yes. Now, this is really interesting. The five obstacles were first recorded two and a half thousand years ago. Yeah. They're the same today. Mm. And this shows you something about human nature. Although our technology and knowledge has increased by a thousand or maybe 10,000 fold, our basic human nature has not changed at all. For, you can read the meditations of Marcus Aurelius. 
this famous Roman emperor wrote a kind of diary about being emperor in 150 AD. Honestly, he could have written it yesterday. There's literally, you read this stuff, you go, boy, this is a modern guy talking mm. about humanity in a kind of despairing way. Um, and he, yet it was written nearly 2,000 years ago. Now, that should really worry us yeah. because it means at, at a basic level, we're not changing. And we're not changing because we're not meditating. Once you meditate, suddenly change in this fundamental way becomes possible because we're no longer a victim mm -hmm. of reflexive reactivity. Yes. Now, reactivity is the map maker going, I know what that is and I know what to do. Yeah. Ah! Now, that reactivity is stressful because we're always bouncing off the sense inputs with some kind of injunction that like we've got to have this, got to do that, you know, 10 things you've got to do before you die, all this stuff. We've <laughs> got to do things. Yeah. Now, that reflexive reactivity is stressful. Yeah. Furthermore, it is reflexive, so it's unconscious. Furthermore, it traps us in the past because it all comes from the past mm. and the present. Yeah. Take climate change, take technology. People find it very difficult to deal with novelty because they're being guided by the past. So people say, oh, the good old days. Yeah, you know, I remember when, you know, all this talk about some golden age that's apparently you've got to go back to to get happy or something, <laughs> is all the final redoubt of the map maker unable to map current circumstance because yeah. our circumstances are changing so we're getting stressed so we need to learn to disconnect reflexivity now there's nothing wrong with the map maker the map maker is a useful advisor but the decision maker can never be the map maker the map maker is mechanical mm -hmm. which means we reflexively give our decision making to the map maker, we become robots. Yeah. We are literally predictable. Yeah. And furthermore, we become narrower and narrower. And uh, as you get older, I know what works. Till eventually you're in a little box like this, you know, just some small thing that you can do well. And that's a tragedy of yeah. the human condition. We need, and there's a wonderful statement by a philosopher called Wittgenstein, but we need to free our natural intelligence from its bewitchment by language. Now, the map maker speaks to us. It's talking, it's using words. And we need to free ourselves from that bewitchment. And when we do, we suddenly find that we're more intuitive, we're more creative, we are calmer, we are kinder. We're far less bothered by stuff because all of that bothering and minding and et cetera, et cetera, is all recognitive. Yes. And so this is a really, you know, one small thing has seriously big effect. In fact, if you begin to meditate, it changes everything. Now, if you learn French, you learn French. It doesn't change anything else. You learn to meditate. You're changing everything. So this is really a big, big deal. It is. And it's it is. easy. It's not difficult. I mean, that's it. Once once you just get the hang of what we're doing, mm -hmm. then it becomes easier. And my idea of this book is it's like this. 
if I have a piece of chocolate, I can write you an essay on what chocolate is. But, you, you know, it's a bit sweet and it's a bit milky and it melts in your mouth. You never have any idea what chocolate is. If I give you a piece of chocolate, oh, OK, I know what chocolate is. It's easy as that. Now, it's exactly like that. The idea in this book is that I'll explain what, what, what you're meant to do. You do it for three minutes. You'll get an experience. That experience is a referent for you, like the taste of chocolate. Yes. Then the next week, you do another little exercise, another referent. Yes. And over the course of 14 weeks, you build up enough of a referent for meditation to mean you know what meditation is. And furthermore, the benefit of meditation you have. Yes. So during your busy working day, you might go, I'm getting a bit stressed and drop out just for five seconds. It totally transforms everything. Now, that's the gift you get in a very short length of time. Now, if you want to go on and meditate for eight hours and explore, <laughs> good for you. At least you've got the taste of chocolate. If you want to go off and be Willy Wonka in the, in the chocolate factory, that's <laughs> great. That. But that's not a requirement. You don't have to do <laughs> I no, say, and, and let's be real. In today's day and age, if you're no, not, as you said, yeah, if yeah, you're not in that lifelong monk, exactly. I would say, um, you know, the epitome of meditation is a, a seated Buddha, mm -hmm. and there's a Buddha in every bathroom now. You know, everybody's got Buddhas <laughs> everywhere. Every restaurant you go, you've got a Buddha in the back. You know, every, and the reason is because the Buddha represents this sort of calm guy who's kind of not not part of a religion, who's made his own way, and all mm. that. Never see a Buddha brushing his teeth or a Buddha eating lunch. Yeah. You know, the Buddha just didn't make, in fact, the Buddha meditated very little. <laughs> we just got this idea that somehow meditation is all about sitting like this and not moving. Yeah, exactly. Ridiculous. It's got nothing to do with that. Meditation yeah. is about engaging with experience properly. Yeah. And once we get that, okay so i'm in my busy working day but i can still be meditative i don't have to sit like this yeah this is not the only way to meditate yes and, and yeah, i that's love the else word savor savor I, I love savor. it because you keep coming back to that and that the word savor is such a beautiful word i think yeah. we can savor something in that in less than three minutes for example so it kind mm -hmm. of brings that together that it's such a just one moment from one moment to the next you can change the way you feel in that in that space savoring that's that your very posh word for this tacit knowledge mm. tacit knowledge is how you tell the difference from uh, between a real thing and a fake mm -hmm. now fakes are really interesting if you get a fake often it has the marks of the real thing and it often has the serial numbers and all those sort of obvious things but a professional who knows the difference will pick up the fake and he will engage with it and say, no, this isn't the real thing. Yeah. Now, we're in the same position. The map maker is giving us a fake map of the authentic experience. Yes. So authentic experience is cognition. Mm. Recognition is a fake. It's a map. As we learn to distinguish between the map, which is, a, which is inauthentic, a fake, and the real thing, we get wisdom. We suddenly go, oh, okay, so I see what this is. I could do this, but I could also do that. Yes. And people go, wow, oh, you're getting so wise. What's <laughs> happened to you? You read some new book? 
you know, how come you can do this? Well, the answer is I'm not reflexively going for the fake all the yes. time. Yes. And so, you know, there's there was always a very interesting moment when Europeans met the American Indians. Because the American Indians living in their shamanistic culture understood this point. Yeah. And there are many amazing writings of the American Indians to Westerners. There's a beautiful thing by Chief Seattle when an American president tries to buy his land. And the guy says, look, I don't own the land. What do you mean buy the land? <laughs> what are you talking about? And it's like the most amazing example of someone mm -hmm. living in a cognitive world, mystified by all this recognitive talk yes. that's come from the American, then American government. And these writings are really beautiful. And, you know, many, many places in the world, when you see people living on the land and then they meet, quote, civilized people, mm. this is the engagement that occurs. And so in many ways, meditation is about coming back to an authentic relationship with life. Yes. And of course, that's going to make you kinder and it's going to make you more environmental and all the good things that you want to be. Yes. All from one thing which is separating this activity of mine. Yeah, that's great. And I, I want to just say that I, I love that you describe the map, ma map maker, maker as like an ant, you know, this someone who's a bit paranoid about all the dangers of the world, because I, when I, I like to often personify things for myself, and when I think about it that way, it's like your aunt has your best interests, but doesn't it's, you know, so it's not something that you have to fight with or, like you said, battle or try to overcome. It's more about, well, thank you, um, but I've got this. You've you got know, to thanks, dance with Auntie. That's it. Thanks so much for the love and the care, yeah. but I've got this, you know. Yeah. Um, but actually, it's a, you go a step further. You dance with Auntie. Yeah. Auntie loves it when you dance with her. Mm. Maybe she's lonely. You know, she's <laughs> trying to look after you, but at the same time, she's worried all the time. Yeah. So you dance with Auntie. So, having a good time then auntie settles down mm. now you know the map maker is very wise it's got a lot of really really good ideas it's not a bad thing it's just paranoid yeah and it's the paranoia so you know you could say meditation is becoming less paranoid but the question is who is becoming less paranoid <laughs> not the map maker the map maker is always going to be paranoid because that is the map maker's job yeah. to be paranoid there's no point in thinking you're going to make your map maker non-paranoid but you can become less paranoid and your map maker becomes this advisor who's always looking for problems he's oh, okay that's helpful but there are yeah. other things in life and that is where we need to get to as a species yes. before we blow each other up from paranoia <laughs> oh, this guy's got better weapons than me, so I've got to get better weapons than him. And oh, yeah, oh, it's yeah. like nuts. And yes. <laughs> all coming from this fundamental problem yeah. in humanity. And so meditation's got big, big, big implications. It's really, it's not about being 10% happier. This, this is all, this idea that meditation's just something you do along with your yoga. Yeah. Not, it's a very big change, yeah. but it's a very small thing to do. Three mm -hmm. minutes a day. That's all. 
Yeah, I love that. And of course, you spoke about uh, the, the, okay, let's say a lot of this is coming through thoughts and language, whether it's internal dialogue. And I know that from, I, I can speak to my own experience, but I know a lot of people would have questions about the thoughts. And I know mm -hmm. that you speak about thoughts not being the enemy, just like we kind of touched on. So I want to talk about what are some of the best ways of dealing with these disturbances or the thoughts coming in. When I was younger, I always felt like, and I think my mom kind of hinted at this so it was something that I pondered but it always felt like the thoughts were just like if you are listening to the radio in the car the thoughts are always there but you don't have to tune into that station you can recognize that they're there but you don't have to tune in and so a lot of my own practice felt like I was just noticing all the the stations that I could choose from but not tuning into them but equally not trying to shut them off so I'd love yeah. to hear about your thoughts in that yeah I, I, okay so we are mapping the world. Yes. We map the world through language. It expresses itself to us as thoughts. Yes. So thoughts are all mapping. They're all, could do this, could do that. Is that one of those? Is this is good? Is this bad? Da, 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 endless. And yeah. then you get random stuff firing off as well. But it's all about mapping. Yes. So there is an incessant need to map experience because, you know, we live in a world we're not that world. And we, the only world we have is the world of our five senses. So that whole process is mapping. Yes. Our five senses aren't like cameras. It's a highly processed image we get. You know, by the time it gets to us, it's been processed. Mm -hmm. And all that processing is mapping. So as we become more aware of our inner state, we hear all these voices. Yes. Now, the thing is, who hears them? This is a really interesting question. So actually, I... Me, Richard, this guy, is part of a map. Mm. The cognition from which I, Richard, etc., has been recognized is what we need to get to. Now, once we get there, we start seeing that there is a, a really interesting construction of me in the world. I call it the heroic narrative. Mm -hmm. All of us have a narrative. I was at school and I did this and I did now I've got this job. And There's a heroic story of me that we tell ourselves and we repeat it to ourselves. We call it our character. Mm. I'm one of these. I'm like that. We can speak about this heroic. Now, now it is literally a heroic narrative. That's to say it's a narrative from the position of a single individual to whom everything is happening. Now, the question is, is that individual real? Mm. Oh, this is where it's interesting. Honestly, most of us spend our lives looking for Hugh Grant in the TV. <laughs> he's on the TV, so he's got to be in there somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> Not the display, guys. Hugh Grant isn't there. Cary mm. Grant isn't there. You know, none of them are there. It's a display. Well, in the same way, the hero, the we have told ourselves we are, is not there either. Mm. It's map reference. Yeah. It's a way our memory can locate us in a place at a time. Mm. Without that map reference, there's no way we could remember where we went yesterday. Mm. But in the actuality of experience, there isn't a hero. There's just experience. Yeah. That's mm. a big discovery. You suddenly go, why? Oh, you mean I could be someone else? Yeah. I could be different. 
I could change. I don't have to be this type of person. Yes. Yeah. Now that's where you really get the issue of transformation. It yeah. doesn't happen yeah. by battling the ego. All this talk of battling the ego is utterly stupid. Yeah. It's literally like trying to fight Cary Grant in the TV screen. You're fighting a windmill. It's not real. Yeah. What you have to realize is where it comes from. Yeah. So all these thoughts are making a world for us. And they are true. They're doing their best to make a good model of the world. But they're not the world. Yeah. It's a model of the world. Once that recognition sinks in, you go, oh, my gosh. So I'm being fooled by my memory. My mm. memory is deceiving me because I'm remembering a world of things with me in it. Yes. But in actuality, that's a map. Yeah. That's not the real world at all. That's just a map. That's called Vishnu's Maya in Hinduism. This is the Maya, the illusion mm. of Vishnu. Now, it's not to say the world is an illusion. That's not the Maya. The Maya is what we remember is an illusion. Yes. Once we understand that, we can become reliable. Mm. We suddenly cease to be in the Maya and become reliable. Not only are we reliable, we are the center mm. of reliability. This is a transformation. And yeah. um, there's the huge transformation that meditation offers. Suddenly, the door opens into something deep and profound. It's called being a human being. Yes. Really being a human being. Not being, you know, again, going back to the American Indians. They used to say most of these cowboys are not human beings. They're not human. They're just robots. They're not actually human. When someone is human, they relate to things as they are. Mm. It's that as they are-ness yes. that is our humanity. And once we find that, it is it is so nurturing. It's like you say, wow, it's not that I've come home. I was always home. I just kept leaving home. That was the problem. I kept going into this map. That's it. <laughs> Stop leaving home. Yeah. And we are always home. We always were home. We belong here. It's not like we're insignificant and all this talk. This is our yes. home. Yes. And that's a very deep realization. And you could call it spiritual if you want. I mean, it's fine. And you know, it doesn't affect any religious beliefs you might have, no, no. but you suddenly go, wow, I'm standing in my own ground. Yes. This is, you know, I belong. I don't, I don't have to justify mm. my I'm here. Yes. And that produces a humanity and a kindness and a compassion that is just spontaneous. It's not like you have to develop it. We are naturally beautiful beings. People yes. are kind. If you fall over in the street, someone's going to pick you up. Mm. You know, it, it's like that. Yeah. It's just we have this recognitive paranoia, which is yeah. always dragging us into, I've got to do this, and I've got to have that, and I must have this, and I'm doing well, or I'm doing badly, or I'm rich, or I'm poor, all this language. And, of course, our educational system makes it worse and worse and yeah. worse because people are judged by their capacity to manipulate this map. That's how judgment is. And so you land up with miserable billionaires and all this sort of madness. Yes, of course. <laughs> and, yes. you know, all these incredibly rich people who all they want to do is make more money. Yes. It's, it's, exactly. a, it's, a, 
mad. Yeah, it's an interesting construct to say the least. And I and I love that you come back to we are home because a lot of what the work that I do around sound healing, for example, is the, the understanding is that you are perfect at your truest essence. And all we're doing is using sound or whatever the modality is for whoever uses whatever. It's about removing all the stuff so that that gem that's always there is just it just gets to shine or be revealed obviously for yourself i really now, there, are, there are features there are features yes uh, so if we look at the five gates sound mm. is very interesting actually sound is the gate that makes meaning mm. now if you if you watch the tv and you turn the sound down it makes no sense whatsoever you literally have no idea what's going on there's stuff happening on the screen you've not if you turn the vision down turn the sound up You've got a story. Yeah. Sound makes meaning. And that's why sound healing is so powerful. Mm. The sound is a very, very important sense. We are predators by biology. So vision is our primary sense for getting things, seeing, which is why working with vision is interesting because it's so reactive. But sound is what makes meaning. And I think it's very interesting to when you're watching TV, turn the sound down and then you see it meaning goes away. Turn the sound back up and work out when it is you get absorbed into the story. Yeah. That's yeah. so interesting. It is. When did that happen? Because that's when your storyteller has engaged with the sound of the storyteller in the TV screen <laughs> and so you've disappeared. And you're kind of in the story in some weird way. This is a really, really interesting thing. That is thing so beautiful. I love that. Yeah. I'm definitely going to have to put that quote for sure from you. It's, it's beautiful. <laughs> and um, this is an interesting one. I, I wanted to ask you because you you encourage your you know people that you work with to smile during meditation. Yeah. So why is this important? Because it's such a simple thing, but oh. I want to know about that. Yeah, okay. So, you know, Buddha's in every bathroom, as I say. If you pick one up, they're always smiling. Mm. It's a little smile, not a big smile. It's a little kind of satisfied smile that they have on their face. And this is technically because sukha, which is contentment, Mm. is a precursor for samadhi, which Mm. is calm concentration. Now, the problem is that when we have an obstacle, something goes wrong in our meditation, most go, oh, I've made a mistake. I've got to go back and do this better. I've got to work harder. That is a complete problem Mm. for achieving calm concentration. What we need to do is smile. Now, smiling is really, really interesting. When you smile, you feel warmth. It is the strangest thing about our physiology. Smiling, even if you're not feeling happy, the moment you smile, you can feel this feeling of sukha, satisfaction. So my advice to people is when they have obstacles in their meditation, it's, quote, not going well, Yeah, smile and return. Mm-hmm. Never go, I must do better and try to return because I must do better is recognitive. You're never going to meditate from there. That is not the spot to take off. Yes. You smile. And in that smiling, you're, oh, okay, I can go back to doing this again. Now, that's a real trick. And again, it's one of the reasons why people give up. They say, meditation didn't work for me. 
That's what they will say. Now, when you look at that statement, meditation didn't work for me. You realize it's entirely in a map of meditation. Yes. A model that they thought was going to do something. Yes. When in fact, meditation is a not doing. It's the dropping of doing for me, not doing for me, all this stuff. And re-inhabiting our own ground. And we re-inhabit our own ground with a smile. Mm. And when we do, oh, it's easy. It's so easy. This is the trouble. It's so easy that we can't do it because we always want to make something of it. We're always bouncing off it because it's so easy. Now, once we get to that calm center, we can see. Now, our innate intelligence is innate. Yes. Innate intelligence is called innate intelligence because it is innate. It is already there. Yes. A young child is highly intelligent. They don't have to be taught. They are intelligent straight away. Yes. And that innate intelligence is something that needs a base, a foundation. So once we are smiling, calm, our innate intelligence sees things like they are. Just like a four-year-old child will go, Daddy, why do you do that? <laughs> Just, oh, my God. <laughs> Whatever it was, you didn't want them to see. <laughs> finger on it don't worry johnny there's nothing <laughs> but yeah. the truth is young kids they see things and that's because their innate intelligence has not yet been seduced yes the conditioning they haven't been conditioned into education and all the rest of it so they see 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 well we want to recover that naive directness and you know yeah. it, it, in zen that's called a beginner's mind yes yes it's being yeah. a beginner to every moment but this mm-hmm. is not posture this is actuality. Actually, yeah. every moment is a new moment. Yes. There's never, ever been a repeat. The map goes, it's one of those. Mm-hmm. The truth is, that is a fake. In reality, it's always new. It was yes. never like that. The exactly. map maker is trying to make sense, that's all, yes. of this incredible kaleidoscopic display of novelty which yes. is really what we're in, this extraordinarily rich, novel, creative display. Yes. That thing. That's beautiful. And then even as, as you speak about a child, children, toddlers, they take everything up to put it in their mouth. That's the experiential piece, right? To savor it, even if it's a bit of soil or even if it's, what is this? They want to taste it, to know, to know it. It's not about that recog, as you said, recognition. And furthermore, they don't have, you know, they'll eat excrement. Yes. They don't have any boundary. Yeah. All that boundary stuff is learned. Yes. It's initially all tacit, all engaged. Now, we have that capacity. That is our innate intelligence. Yes, it is. And You know, my dream is that more and more people learn to meditate, discover this incredibly creative, tacit, wonderful center of being. Yes. And are then able to take the wisdom, their knowledge, everything they've learned and use it wisely. Mm. We have a whole world instead of, you know, what we now have, which is knowledge being used by children, madmen. I mean, it's all sad. And this is where we are. And so our technologies turns against us Mm. because we're not using it wisely. And there's nothing wrong 
with technology. There's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with any of the of the, the accoutrements of modernity, but this. Yes. They're not being used wisely. And this is not something you get in a book. I'm not suggesting that with there's some rule book, you've got to do this, you've got to do that, you know, language matters, all this talk of you know, right and right. That's all recognitive. Yes. This wisdom comes from within. Yes. And the trick to it is to have a basic comprehension of recognition. And once you get there, once you understand recognition, you then see where wisdom lies. And of Mm. course, that's a matter of being authentic. It's an ethical question. You have to say, is this authentic? Am I being authentic? And authenticity, again, is a not doing. It's not a doing. Authenticity is a genuine, open response to actuality. It's not a model. It's not a plan. It's not a clever thing. It's actually not at all clever authenticity. It's just the fact. Yes. And, you know, we all have it. We all know what we're talking about. You know, it's grandma and granddad on the farm, you know, whatever. We all have these tropes of what authenticity is. The truth is we can find it in ourselves. Mm. Uh, That's such a discovery. And you suddenly go, wow, so a lot of the stuff I'm worrying about is silly. It's, yeah. it's, it, it, it isn't going anywhere. Yeah. And if I can become wiser and I share that wisdom, I'm doing something of value. Yeah. This is actually valuable. And yeah. you know, this, this can be healing in a really deep sense. Definitely. I think I'm going to have to have you on for a second conversation, Richard, because this can go on and on. Um, but I just want to start by saying thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the work that you're doing. I really celebrate you and, you know, what you're teaching through meditation and about meditation and all of this that is so needed in the world and that, you know, the impact and the healing and transformation that can occur. I would even say the magic to use some of the words that you brought here today. I really am so grateful and I cannot wait for your book to be out to share this beautiful work with the world. Now, I do ask all of my guests one final question, and I think you've kind of said some of it already, but I will still ask you the question. And that is, what is your soulful sound to the world? A self prayer or desire that you wish upon the world? Um, there's an amazing book called A Paradise Built in Hell. This is a book everyone should read. It's a book about what happens after natural catastrophes. It's written by a journalist. And one of the paradigms is the San Francisco earthquake of 1908, when everything was destroyed, civil society was destroyed. All that was left was survivors walking in the you know, burnt out streets. Far from descending into barbarity, they made a utopia. They had banks, hospital banks. They organized. It was a magical utopia. And then about seven days later, an army general came along and said, this is disorder and instituted a police force on top of it. And this is not the only example. There are many, many examples like this. My hope is that people through a simple three minute a day practice will recover their humanity. And in so doing, the innate kindness that is the hallmark of our species will just spread like a ripple around the world. And the problem that we think we have will go away because we will become decent. 
And it's that fundamental decency that is such a gift. And honestly, it's not complicated. It's common sense. And it's just that we are captured by this advisor, this vizier that has (laughs) ideas. And it's that problem. Once we see the vizier and we say, look, you sit down. Mm. I'm going to take control now. Suddenly our life becomes altogether different. That is my hope for the world. That's landed. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. Dare I say your presence and all of the work that you're doing. Thank you so much, Richard. My pleasure too. Thanks so much for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Please feel free to share it with your friends and remember to subscribe. From my heart to yours, sending you love, healing, and sound wherever you are.